Do you want to stop yelling and have your child listen to? Well, I have exciting news for you. If you're hearing this right now, it means that the doors to mindful parenting are open at mindfulparentingcourse.com. This only happens for a limited time, and it may be perfect for you if you want to be that patient, calm parent, but you're afraid of being walked all over, you're losing it, and you want to be that steady, peaceful parent, you don't have a cohesive method, and you take in bad advice like just count to one, two, three. Mindful parenting is an evidence-based system that not only teaches you how to calm your reactivity, but offers you a ton of personal guidance. A lot of other parenting coaches talk about the best way to respond to your child, but guess what? They don't walk you through the research-proven practices that it really takes to create changes that actually last. Mindful Parenting teaches you the specific steps to create cooperative, loving relationships for life. In Mindful Parenting, you can learn how to stay calm, even if you find yourself shouting hourly now. Be present for your child no matter what they're going through. Resolve conflicts easily without yelling or taking away the iPad. Set limits without your child resenting you for days afterward. And build trust between you and your child so that you avoid misery in the teen years. The doors are open now at mindfulparentingcourse.com. Unlike other programs in Mindful Parenting, we offer one-on-one coaching to every member and weekly drop-in coaching sessions. Don't wait anymore. You and your kids are worth leveling up. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com and join now before the doors close again. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com. I'll see you there. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode 127. Today, we're talking about the good news about bad behavior with Katherine Lewis. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark-Fields, Mindful Mama mentor. I coach overstressed moms on how to cultivate calm in their daily lives to create more peace and cooperation in their families. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting Course, and I'm the mom of two girls who challenge me every day to hone my craft. Welcome back. If you're new to the podcast, we have been taking a brief summer recess. And to my loyal listener, I am so glad to be talking to you again. So welcome, welcome. I am so glad to be here. I'm so excited to start this new season And I'm so grateful that you are here and really honored to be in your ears. In just a moment, I'm going to be sitting down with Catherine Reynolds-Lewis, and she is an award-winning journalist, author, and speaker based in the D.C. area. Her book, The Good News About Bad Behavior, explains why modern kids are so undisciplined and tells the stories of innovators who are rebuilding lost self-control, resolving family conflict, and changing the trajectory of young lives. Catherine is a certified parent educator with the Parent Encouragement Program in Kensington, Maryland. And I'm so excited for you to sit down with us because I'm going to talk to her about 
some things that are really near and dear to my heart. And for every mindful mama who has wanted the stats to show that yelling and punishment are counterproductive, this episode is going to do that. There's some some really powerful research behind Catherine's book. And I'm going to ask Catherine about why kids have less self-control now. Why do rewards actually discourage the behavior you want to incentivize? And what are the common elements to the parenting paths that work? So join me at the table as I talk to Catherine. But first, here's a brief message about our upcoming Mindful Parenting free training. Are you frustrated with parenting? Do you want to practice conscious, compassionate parenting, but you don't know how? It's not easy, and there's no roadmap for this. Until now. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, creator of the Mindful Parenting course, and I know how frustrating it is because I've been there. I struggled as a young mom, and when I found myself yelling and triggered by my child, I knew there had to be a better way, and there is. Mindful parenting is different from other parenting trainings. They don't tell you that all of that good advice is as good as useless when our internal stress response is triggered. Mindful Parenting teaches you research-based tools and practices to reduce your stress response so that you can respond rather than react. And it teaches you exactly what to say so that you can create willing cooperation from your child. You can learn more and enroll at mindfulparentingcourse.com and you can join us for a free live training coming up soon where you'll learn why your kids don't listen to you, how your brain undermines your parenting, and how to create cooperative kids without losing your temper. Sign up now at mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. I'll see you there. And now on to this episode. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. I'm so glad you're here. I'm excited to talk to you. Your book, The Good News About Bad Behavior, already. I'm so excited about it. Like, I have been like reading it at night before I go to bed, and I've been like flagging down my daughter to like tell her different facts that you have in your book because I'm super excited about all the stuff that you have in here. But for the person who is new to this, you talk about why kids are less disciplined than ever, which is kind of interesting, which is, you know, so I've, I've been sharing it with my coaching people and I've been like, listen, if you think your kids are a little crazy, it's true. Catherine Reynolds Lewis says so. So <laughs> can you tell us about what the problem is? Yeah, it's really something that I got into exploring because of my own question that is this normal I don't remember kids being this chaotic when I was little and grew out of my experiences as a mother and a school volunteer and then you know I got my journalist brain interested and I started looking at the science and interviewing teachers and parents and psychologists and following scientists to try to understand is there something different about kids today the way that they're growing up, the way that their brains are working. And I concluded that yes, kids just don't have the same ability to manage their thoughts, behavior, and emotions that they might have 20 or 30 or 40 years ago for a number of factors. And we see this in the rise in anxiety, ADHD, depression, self-harm, suicidality, 
one in two children by the time they're 18 will have a mood or behavioral disorder or a substance addiction, according to the National Institutes of Health. And if you looked at the CDC data, you can see that the suicide rate among children 10 to 14 has doubled in the last decade. And it's gone up 41% for kids 15 to 19. So it's a bunch of scary statistics and it may not seem like it applies to your neurotypical kid, but we know that children are all on a spectrum. And so the behaviors that maybe reach the level of a diagnosis in some kids are still present in other kids where they have more trouble sitting still in their chair. They have more trouble staying organized or managing their big emotions or dealing with conflict with siblings or other children. So we need to understand that our kids are starting off needing more support and more practice. And when they are, quote unquote, misbehaved, it's not a reflection on our bad parenting. It doesn't mean they're going to be in a van down by the river in 20 years. It's normal. And we just need to be curious, understand what's going on and support them in developing better skills. Yeah. I mean, this was so interesting to me. You have, you have a, like a study in your book where they've found, I mean, I just want to underline this because in your book, you write about how they found that kids don't have the same ability to the same sort of self-control abilities. And they found that in as far away as Russia, as well as here than they did you know, years and years ago. I mean, that's that's pretty fascinating because we know that we're in a different world now and we're in our individual families and we think our kids are, are kind of not so because kids can be, you know? But to see that it's this like generational difference is wild. Right, and I think what I hope people will take from the book is not, oh, this is a crisis, even though it is, mm. but okay, what I'm experiencing is normal. It's not my imagination And so therefore, I may need more support as a parent than it seemed like my parents did or my grandparents did, and and really to normalize the experiences that people are having. And that study in Russia, to me, was so powerful because it just simply measured the time that children could stand still when told to do so. And to me, that was just such a simple measure and so powerful to see that that raw number of seconds that kids can stand still now has declined. Um, It's sort of the most basic way you can ask, can you control yourself? And you say they need they need more support, but I think a lot of people might say, well, like, what are the differences between then and now? Because some people might say, well, it's the way we're parenting them. It's the way, you know, that we are, we're not being hard enough on them and that we need to kind of just, you know, knock that discipline into them for them to be able to have that. So, but you found the research and this is what excited me about it. Cause I, I say that's not true, but you're pointing out that it's the research that says that's not true. The research says otherwise. So, so what do you say to the people who say they need like more discipline to, to have this more self-control? Right. Well, this is where we do know so much more than our parents and our grandparents did. You know, that we have decades of research on what happens to kids when they are spanked or chastised or subject to extreme verbal punishment and discipline. And we can look at the literature on the developmental psychology side and see that those kids have poor mental health as adults. They tend to have poorer relationships with their parents. And yes, they may meet all those benchmarks of 
graduating high school, not getting into trouble, getting a job, but then they have difficulty with addiction, forming healthy relationships in adulthood. And these are the things that really we, we want so deeply for our kids. So looking at the developmental psychology literature, we see that's not effective, this type of authoritarian, stern, chastising kind of parenting. And then when you look inside kids' brains, as many of these really fascinating neuroscience studies have done, you can see that when kids are yelled at or people are experience that sort of rebuke from someone close to them, their brain reacts as if they were hit. And it's an attack the same way that you would experience any other attack of, or threat. Your body goes into a fight or flight state. And if you experience that over and over as a child, you grow up in a, in a state of stress. And, and that's very toxic to our bodies. So on both sides of the science, you know, the, the longer you know, psychological studies that have been observational and the newer neuroscience, we see that this parenting is just damaging to children. And it doesn't mean, you know, if you lose your temper and you yell at your kid or maybe even you swat them on their rear, I, I don't recommend it, but it's, you're not going to damage them for life one time. It's this repeated, you know, habitual parenting that's stern and distant is damaging to kids. And we also know that kids need limits and they need consistency and they need to learn to self-discipline. So we need to find that middle path where you are connected to your children and you're emotionally supportive and you're also giving them the boundaries as they're younger that they need to learn self-discipline. Yeah. I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And the season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt-free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.
this becomes fascinating because as I've told you, I teach the mindful parenting course and oftentimes one partner might take the course and the other partner, <laughs> I'm just hoping that the, the other partner could listen to just up to that point of what you just said, because the other partner doesn't believes that the authoritarian methods are more effective because they quote unquote work in that moment. But you're saying that it eventually leads to to poor markers of mental health, like addiction and things like that. But but they might say then, well, I was parented like that, and I'm not an addict, and I don't have right. mental health. So so I'm just trying to think about what the objectors might say, and and so how would you might respond to that argument? Right, I would say you're so fortunate. We you know not all kids are vulnerable to mental illness, but you don't know in advance if your child is a child who's more sensitive who develop problems. So plus you're you're not going to build that that strong relationship that you want with your child. When it comes to that one parent takes the course or reads the book and the <laughs> other doesn't, I have had experience with that as well and I always recommend that we can only ever control ourselves. So if your spouse or your co-parent is parenting differently, you know, and they're open to hearing these ideas, wonderful, share them with them, but don't then be the expert who's showing them what they want, that what they're doing wrong and critiquing them. It's just as discouraging for an adult to be told they're bad or they're not doing it right as it is for a child. And the better solution is just to parent the way that you want to parent. And they'll notice if they're sensitive and observant that you're getting better results with the kids. The kids want to be with you. The kids are cooperative. They help with chores when you're around. And and that kind of evidence is going to be more effective than telling them, I read this awesome book, or I listened to an amazing e-course, or I heard this fabulous podcast, because it's really the proof that will sway the doubters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's other problems, right, with sort of, you talk about sort of harsh discipline, but the, even if it's not harsh, you point out in the book the, the problems with reward and punishment. So, and what, what this is all kind of coming back to, which I just want to point out for, for you, dear listener, is that this is like what Catherine's referring to is this like distinction between intrinsic versus extrinsic modes of, of, of motivation. And that when we're motivated by something that is outside of ourselves, when we're kind of forced to be doing something that's outside ourselves, whether it's by reward or punishment or fear of the yelling or the spanking, that's not a kind of motivation that, that lasts that long, that we're going to get to the intrinsic motivation. But Catherine, tell us about the reward and punishment and what the research says about that as well. Yeah, it's fascinating. And th these are the sort of two tools that parents instinctively turn to, at least I did when I first had kids, was how do I offer that carrot that will in, you know, get them to do it or threaten with the stick? And if you look at the literature, rewards actually discourage the behavior you want to incentivize. It's super counterintuitive, but if you look at the research by Ryan and DC out of University of Rochester or Carol Dweck at Stanford, the studies that they've done where they offer a reward, whether it's a monetary reward or some other incentive, the people who are given the reward count the activity as less valuable 
compared with people who were just offered the activity. And that can be doing a puzzle or trying a new beverage or all the things we try to get our kids to do, try new things, challenge themselves, be explore their palate. And so it's important for us as parents to realize that if we reward a behavior, it may work in the near term, but we're telling that child this behavior is intrinsically undesirable and therefore I have to reward you and the kid themselves <laughs> counts it as less enjoyable. So it happens with work, with taking risks in school, with foods. And so really it's, it's very dangerous, a slippery slope with rewards. And eventually there will come a time when the kid just doesn't really care about the reward and then you haven't developed the social connections or the cooperation that would otherwise get the child to go along with whatever you're proposing. That's the problem with rewards. The problem with punishment is, as I discussed before, it creates this barrier between the child and the adult. It breaks the relationship, at least in a small way. And so therefore, it it turns the child away from the person that could be supporting them, building their neural pathways, helping them to understand the experience. And it, it misses that opportunity for building social and emotional skills in that moment. So you dove into all this research because you were a parent and <laughs> and your kids were, I'm not, imagine you were in that baffling place that we all get to probably around when our kids are two and we're like, what is going on? How do I do this? What's going on? It, it sounds like reward and punishment was something that you, you tried. You, you tried some of these counterproductive methods that are kind of just in our, in our culture and in our zeitgeist, right? Oh, absolutely. I gave stickers. I counted to three. You know, I, I used all of them and they did work often for at least a couple weeks. And especially with our older kids, then our third came along and, oh, she was not having it. So, <laughs> so I had to find new strategies and I'm really grateful to her that she just was on a completely different track because we realized that we needed deeper tools to really raise resilient kids who could be self-disciplined. Yeah, I'm always grateful to my very intense first child <laughs> for putting me on this path in the first place. It's amazing. So so the problem is that the you know the kids are more chaotic they actually they actually have less self control and but then these tools that we want to reach for these traditional tools authoritarian tools like yelling like reward like punishment you point out that they're actually counterproductive because it, it in the long run it really makes maybe in the short run you have a kid who's afraid of you and they're like okay i do the thing but in the long run there there's probably a lot of resentment that's built Right. And you're teaching the child people who are more powerful can control the people who are less powerful. And so you're building a child who's always going to seek power. They're always going to be looking for an opportunity to be in charge, to be in control, to boss you. And so you're just setting yourself up for power struggles, for passive aggressive behavior and or a child who becomes sneaky, who says, I'm going to do what I want and I'm going to do it behind my parents' back because there's no path to compromise. There's no way I can have input into how my life goes. So instead, I'm just going to find you know, a, a way to do it that's hidden. Yeah. So then there's, there's lying and all of those things because they, don't, they only want to maybe do the thing because of the external thing. And so it's not, it's not like an internal desire. So 
you know, all this research. Also, I want to point out that you do a lot of research into kind of the opposite. And, you know, it was interesting to you, the permissive side, right? And it was interesting for me to read this because apparently, you know, I'm 40 years old. You talk about how this, like, get... The, this permissive parenting becomes much more popular in the 1990s, which of course I was like, you know, I was a, you know, a 13 year old at the time. So it was all passing me by. And um, so tell us about how this, you know, the pendulum swung in this other direction and what are some of the problems on this side? Right. So permissive parenting certainly is, was my first instinct when I didn't want to be the authoritarian, you know, hammer that came down on my kids. But the problem with permissive parenting is that it's actually kids have even worse outcomes than kids who have authoritarian parents. They tend to do poorly in school. They tend to experiment with drugs and sex and risky behavior. And at the same time, they're not learning, you know, the discipline to show up at school, get good grades. And so they tend to have really bad outcomes. They may have a good relationship with you. They may have decent mental health, but they're not going to have the sort of life success outcomes that will sustain them as an adult. And ultimately, you know, if you're not doing well in school, you're not succeeding um, in that arena. Often they, you know, kids do sometimes turn to substances or, you know, become addicted just because they're allowed to try it by a permissive parent. And this is what I often see parents doing. You know, they don't want to yell. They don't want to say my way or the highway. And so instead they kneel down and they have like a half an hour conversation with a two-year-old who's in the middle of a meltdown. And that's not good either, right? Because that's not helping. Our kids, when they are melting down, when they're having tantrums, they cannot hear us. They're not going to be reached by reason or logic or words in that moment, unless it's something like, I'm here, I'm with you, I love you, you know, that sort of small, short, empathetic messages that can help them calm down that once their brains are regulated, then you can go into problem solving. But I think parents do often talk a lot because we don't want to be yelling. But we somehow think if our child, our three-year-old, just just heard the logic, they would suddenly <laughs> not want that sugared cereal because it's so bad for their teeth and their health. And you know, that doesn't work either. <laughs> that's yeah it's amazing you know it's hard to imagine that that two-year-old saying no no thanks I don't want that right yeah <laughs> yeah so so we don't want either of these which I'm of course for me as somebody who you know I thought I was going to have this great relationship with my my daughters and then it became my daughter at the time and it came, became so difficult and so challenging. And I discovered for myself that my parents' voice came out of my mouth and that my my father's anger came out of me. And I had to really learn tools to lower my reactivity so I could communicate more effectively. And so I'm wondering, you know, we're going to talk about the middle path, which is the path that that I found and that you found this is this is this more effective there are paths I should say but I'm wondering about you Catherine and you know I'm wondering how you were parented by your parents and did some of these old habits come out were there some things that were good that you wanted to keep and maybe some things that weren't so good that you really wanted to get out of your system and and not not let come out so much yeah oh that's a great question 
My parents were wonderful. They, <laughs> I don't know if they were authoritarian or permissive. It may be that they uh, seesawed because my they both were raised by authoritarian parents. And so I think for them, that was their go-to when they got frustrated or when they didn't have any other option, but they did want that close relationship with us. So they were very connected and very involved and loving. And then occasionally they just be, okay, my, my way of the highway. And my mom in particular, and I write about critical mothers in the book and the damage that parental criticism can do, like her voice, the sort of negative voice, when I have negative self-talk in my head, it is my mother's voice, you know, about my being lazy or being, you know, whatever the other thing is that I'm blaming myself for. So, so I've had to understand, you know, that they were doing the best they could with the resources they had and they really gave us a wonderful grounded childhood. Um, I think one of the blessings is that my mom went back to work full time in a very intense job when I was about 12. And so in those early adolescent years when kids need to make a lot of mistakes and mess up and learn from their mistakes, she wasn't there to be right on top of me criticizing and critiquing and redirecting just because she was so busy. And so I was able to have more autonomy and to, to learn a little bit through my own mistakes, which is something I advocate for all parents. Of course, we may be sitting on our hands as opposed to like, you know, in school and trying to get another degree as a, you know, 40 year old. But yeah, it's, it's definitely been a journey for me to try to create my own style of parenting that pulls all of the great emotional support and connection that they gave us, but without a lot of that, you know, the critical messages and the, some of the negativity that, you know, would come out in those moments of frustration. And that's absolutely something you can do too, dear listeners. Think about your own upbringing and think about what you want to keep and and also think about what didn't didn't feel so good. So sometimes we forget to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of the child and and get into that place where we remember. And, you know, I, I really can remember being afraid of my father's anger and really realizing seeing that same anger, that same fear on my daughter's face and being like, Oh gosh, what a, what a wake up call. So, so we don't want to, we don't want to yell, right? We don't want to, we don't want to criticize. <laughs> we don't want to spank. So then what does the middle path look like? How do we, we're saying to the listener, like, don't do this if you can, <laughs> you know, tr try not to, try not to do this. So, so how do we correct behaviors that are problematic without doing those things. And you're also saying, it sounds like what I'm hearing is that, you know, give kids room to make some mistakes too. And, and I think this is something that we need to check within ourselves is like our expectations for our child really high. So, so take that any way you'd like to, Catherine. It's a great question. And that in my book, I loved earlier when you said the middle ways or the middle paths, because there are so many different ways of threading this needle. And in the book, I spent five years researching and reporting the effective discipline models that are out there that have been used for decades and are really successful, have great outcomes. So I looked at four different models of discipline, two in schools and two in homes, and tried to pull out what are the common threads that make these effective, that actually end up teaching kids self-discipline to manage their thoughts, behavior, and emotions. And I came out with three common elements in all of them. Number one, connection between the adult and child. 
Number two, communication about the issue or the behavior or the problem at, that's at, in question. And the third, a focus on capability building. And this is both in the, the moment, whatever discipline issue you're dealing with, building their social and emotional skills, but also more broadly, helping children to see themselves and actually to be capable. So they're contributing to the household. They're doing things that actually help our family and community. They can look at themselves as really mattering and belonging as opposed to childhood just being focused on achievement and how you know fast they run, how many soccer goals they kick, how brilliantly they play the piano, what grades they get. So those three elements, connection, communication, and capability building are also supported by that scientific literature. And it's fascinating, so much in the book, but just a couple that I'll pull out, you know, when you hold someone's hand, you actually help their brain regulate the fight or flight response. So if your child's having a tantrum and you're able to put a hand on their shoulder, hold their hand, give a hug, some kids will not let you, and so then you don't push it. But that can actually change the neurobiology in their brains at that moment and help them to calm down from the agitated fight or flight state. And I also think a lot of what we do as parents that's helpful is not in that moment of conflict mm. or tantrum. Mm-hmm. It's the planning, talking, anticipating with our kids, helping them think ahead, and then helping them process. So in that moment, yeah, they may make mistakes. And our job is not to tell them they're wrong or tell them they did a bad job or tell them they made a mistake. But as we do that reflection with them afterwards, help them to come to the conclusions that will lead to success. So after, you know, they had a squabble on the playground and hit someone with a ball, we don't need to say that was wrong. You shouldn't do that. If they're older than three, they've heard it before. They know it's wrong. But to tell them, hey, what was that like? What could you do next time? And they may say, I was bad. I shouldn't have hit them with the ball. And you say, yeah, it sounds like you had an impulse. You had a feeling you just wanted to hit. What could you do next time so you don't hit? And then they can make a plan for the future. And what we need to expect as parents is there will be dozens and hundreds of conversations like that (laughs) at all different levels from the playground to the parties in high school where you're going to be sending your child out with all of the advice and wisdom that you can pour into their ears and then they're going to be the actor and have agency and you'll be that soft place to land if they mess up when they mess up because we all do and helping them process and get back up and try again yes I I love this. So you're talking about instead of being reactive to that moment, that that difficult moment, helping them kind of emotionally get through that moment. You're you're talking about and you talk about a lot this a lot in the book is this idea of the emotional regulation. And so what you're kind of saying is like our emotions and our kids' emotions drive us to do stupid stuff sometimes, right? Right. They drive us to do them to do all kinds of stupid things and and us as well. And they make mistakes. And so what we need to be doing more is to be helping them process the emotions that are leading to these behavioral challenges. Yeah. 
Right, exactly. And, or even to help them understand, you know what, um, this day was too busy for me. I can't go from soccer to a birthday party to swim and, and not lose it. So I just, you know, maybe it's something bigger than just the emotions. Maybe it's that they're a, a kind of kid who needs more downtime or they actually get bored and they need more structured activity, but helping them to understand who they are and to make the most and the, and the best of their lives and figure out how they're going to contribute to the world, which is really all we all want for our kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. So let's rewind just a little bit to like in your section talking about the problem because you mentioned this kid who is going from the, the soccer practice to the birthday party to the pool party and whatnot. And one of the things that you talk about in the good news about bad behavior is how much our world has changed in this this time. And I kind of was, I was talking about this with, I was talking about your book on my hus- with my husband on and my girls as we were walking through the woods. And we were making the analogy that our culture has is kind of like the frog in the pot of boiling water, right? Mm. Where we have been slowly turning up the heat and we're not realizing the changes. And you had some really shocking statistics in your book. I have like question mark, exclamation point kind of written down on this. You write that in 1970, children were four years old before they regularly started watching TV. Nowadays, the average age is four months. When yep. I started, and we were just like, our jaws were like, we're scraping them off the ground. Like, are you really? Are you serious? And then by age of five, the typical kid is on a screen for four and a half hours a day, which is 40% of their waking hours. And I just like, I mean, that's so shocking to me. Like, I, I feel like, oh my gosh, how can we not 
realize that this is an incredible problem. But then also, if this is the culture around us, like for those who are maybe on the more moderate side of that, like, I don't know. So tell us a little bit about the problem of our screens and our, our lives and, and the way our lives have changed so much and the lives for kids have changed so much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, that's a great, I love that you were walking in the woods because the other scary statistics I, I recently heard is that children have on average have less daily outdoor time than prisoners in, you know, prisons or jails. And so it's just obvious when you think about it, how much our society has changed. And of course that would have an impact on our behavior and our brains. So it's impossible to totally prove why kids are the way they are now, why we have this crisis of self-regulation. But in the book, I argue there's three huge factors that have changed in our society. Number one, you mentioned, which is the dramatic increase in screens and technology. It's really just now our ecosystem. It's the default that we have them at our fingertips. Um, The second factor is play that has almost disappeared from kids' lives. And by this, I mean unstructured play, outdoor play, where you're not on a team in a soccer match or, you know, in some kind of activity, but you're really autonomous. You're playing with other kids, making your own rules, figuring out your own conflicts. And that has always been how children learn social and emotional skills and conflict resolution and even things like abstract thought. It's so important. Play is the work of childhood. And so many kids aren't playing in that true sense where it's not an organized activity. Then the third factor is the way that we are really so isolated in many, many families are so isolated. We're not connected to our community. The kids don't have a sense of they have a job to do in the family where they're doing chores or watching a younger sibling. They may not have an after school job or, you know, helping our neighbors or, 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 you know, that broader sense of contribution. And instead their childhood is all about achievement, as I mentioned before. Mm. So it's hard to, fight back against the tide. But I've heard so many stories on book tour for this book about families that have, and it, you don't need to, you know, move into to the wilderness or join a commune, but to, <laughs> they can just be that one person on the block who one afternoon a week is home after school. And that's the place where kids can come and play. And one mom I talked to said that her son was always wanting to just play in the backyard, but there were no other little boys around for him to play with. And then a new family moved into the neighborhood and they didn't have a set schedule and their son started playing with her son and before you knew it they were always like roaming the backyard making sticks into weapons and creating forts and all the things that many parents would say oh that's so dangerous but that's what eight nine-year-old boys want to do and suddenly the other boys in the neighborhood didn't want to go to their scheduled activity because they heard all the fun that their friends were having and before long there were like 10 little eight-year-old boys roaming that neighborhood and playing free playing in the afternoons and it's so much healthier for them and more affordable for the parents than (laughs) paying for all the after-school activities so there are ways we can do it it doesn't have to be a weekday it can be one afternoon on the weekend when you say we're not signing up for anything, we're just going to kick the kids out of the house and they can play with the neighbors or in the backyard. And you'll, you may find that more and more people will glom onto that when they see you doing it. Yeah. I mean, we do this in our family, we do this screen-free Sunday. And so every Sunday we don't have any screen time. And I f- sometimes we feel like we need to like make 
sort of <laughs> the irony is we want to make Instagram posts of it. Hashtag screen free Sunday. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Things our kids do on screen free Sunday are like amazing because they get into all these really creative projects. There's books that start being created and forts and all these, all these really cool things that, that end up happening on screen free Sunday. And I, I love that you're encouraging people to get out and to let your kids play because we need that. And so what, what do you say to the listener who says that I'm too afraid to let my kids out into the neighborhood, you know, and, and what, what are some good guidelines? I mean, it's hard to say, I mean, every kid is individual, but, but what might you say to the people that, who say, I'm, I'm afraid to let my kids out and, and what might be some baby steps that they could take? Yeah, well, I, I understand that fear and truly parenting has become so fear-based and um, we're worried about something bad happening to our kids. We're worried about us being blamed for it. Mm -hmm. We're worried about the judgment of other parents, but parenting is not for the faint of heart. We need to be strong enough and courageous enough when our children are older to ask them how they're handling sex and drugs, to ask them if they've thought about self-harm or suicide, to have those difficult conversations. And if we can't build those muscles in ourselves when our kids are little, how are we going to get to that point? So I would take it as a challenge that my child needs this freedom. And my fear is about me. And Mm. anxiety, I don't think it's a coincidence, is the biggest disorder of those disorders that I mentioned before. Nearly a third of kids in the NIH study developed anxiety by the time they're 18. So our children need the opportunity to test themselves and take risks more than we need to feel that they're safe because we have them within eyesight. The, the, the things going on in their heads are more dangerous to them than falling or tripping or, or getting hurt in, in the outdoors are. So as you say, baby steps, you always do it with your child first. You talk about how they would handle different situations. When we started letting our kids walk to the neighborhood elementary school, we walked it with them. We talked about how do you handle crossing the road? How do you know when it's safe? And then did it with them where they were 100% in charge and we weren't warning them or coaching them or anything. And then they started doing it on their own. And I admit, I called the school secretary to make sure they got there safely. And she was kind enough to tell me, yes. So it's the same with like when you let your kids go on bike rides around the neighborhood, we always have them in pairs. We have a rule that even if you have the worst fight you've ever had with your friend or your sibling, you never leave a friend. And so you can bike back steaming at each other, but you make sure you're both home before you split up. And, you know, those kinds of things are just the first steps. I also would would give give kids lots of opportunities to be independent in a grocery store. They can go um, hunt down down a different aisle from you. Even at five and six, if you're keeping an eye on them and you have a safe place to meet, that can be a little baby step to giving them more autonomy. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love those. You know, it's funny. Yeah. And you're talking about coaching, not controlling, right? Like, and the, really the whole point of this is to work ourselves out of a job, right? So we want to be doing that. I have to share, we live in kind of a little patch of woods and we have a lot of English ivy and we have poison ivy. And I have to say, my girls are like expert spotters in poison ivy at this point because I've, you know, just taught taught them how to do it. So um, it's such a great analogy too, because we cannot be there every minute of their life and that's not healthy. So we have to give them the skills and the knowledge to protect themselves. 
Yes, yes, exactly. So before we let you go, Catherine, I want that you mentioned a couple other things in the book that I think are really important to underline. And and dear listener, you have to get this book because it's wonderful. It's so readable, chock full of knowledge. It's great for all those partners who want the stats. Get it for the partners who want the stats. <laughs> and you also point out two things that I wanted to end with, and that is that kids need some stress in their lives and it's actually not helpful to have that perfect ideal mom or dad. So can you speak to those just briefly? Yes. Yes. This is the other big bugaboo of parenting aside from fear is inadequacy or guilt or whatever you want to call it. If we mess up, if we have one moment where we don't parent the way we planned, we beat ourselves up so hard. If we forget a permission slip or yell or do something else that shows we are human, it's somehow impossible. And yet think about if you were a child who sees you as so capable and competent and always knowing what to do when, if you never mess up, boy, how are they ever going to imagine they can be as capable as you? Whereas if you mess up and you normalize being imperfect, then it's okay for them to be imperfect too. Mm. So many of the problems we've been talking about, anxiety, self-harm, suicide, come from children turning that anger or hatred inside against themselves instead of accepting we're all flawed and imperfect. It's a gift to show your child that that does not destroy you. And in fact, you accept that. So mm. yeah, go on. Amen, sister. And not make the mistakes, apologize. It's also how we model apology, forgiveness, and making amends. Yes. Yes. And then, and then kids need some stress in their life, right? Yes. Yes. So So this is how we all learn and change and grow. When you look at back at your life and you think about when were the times I really discovered I was capable, it was when you were faced with real challenge. So we can't, and we shouldn't try to remove all those challenges from our child's life, whether that's teacher who's perhaps not the nicest or a playmate who we see our child having conflicts with or the many other bumps in the road that are part of a normal childhood. We can help our child prepare for them, as I said before, and process them, but we shouldn't try to eliminate them because, you know, at what point is it going to be okay for our child to experience difficulty? When they're 18? Well, then if they've never experienced it up until then, they won't be ready. We need to help them have the opportunity to build those muscles. Mm. Catherine, this is amazing. You have just dropped so many wisdom bombs on us today. I think it's it's wonderful. Dear listener, you go get the good news about bad behavior. It's really a great read. Catherine's a great writer and it's chock full of those statistics that really back all this up. So if you need the the support for a partner or a spouse who says I don't know. We need to spank the kids. So um, (laughs) Catherine, where can people connect with you and tell them maybe their takeaways from listening to the Mindful Mama podcast with you today? Oh, I would love to hear from listeners. My website is katherinrlewis.com. I'm on Facebook at Catherine R. Lewis, Instagram, Catherine Reynolds Lewis, and Twitter, Catherine Lewis. Catherine, this has been a 
great gift for you to take the time to talk to us. And I just want to thank you for this work because you took the strengths, your journalism strengths that you have, which are in your writing strengths, which are considerable. And you made this, presented this information with such clarity and such humanity. And I think this work that you've done in this book is really going to help shift the dial. It's going to help change things for so many people in ways that you'll never, ever know, I'm sure, but it's really helping me and I'm definitely going to pass it on to others. So I I just want to thank you for the work that you've put out in the world and thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, Hunter, thank you so much. I have loved the conversation and thank you for supporting parents and families and I'm excited to read your book. (laughs) Coming soon, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Mindful Mama podcast. I hope you enjoyed what Catherine had to say about kids having less control. You're, you're actually not going crazy, which is great. And isn't it amazing about the rewards that actually discourage and these common elements to the parenting paths that work. And that's why I created Mindful Parenting. And that's why we're going to be doing the free training. So if you do one thing today, make sure you join the Mindful Parenting free training. It's at mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. And this is really, Catherine and I were so excited to talk to each other because this is one of those parenting paths that really do work. That is that middle authoritative path. So we will show you how to really create that calm within yourself so that you can create these great relationships that last a lifetime. So I'm so glad you were here to be part of the podcast today. So glad to be back in your ears. And if you have comments, questions, feel free to tag me and connect with me. But be sure to join the free training because that's where we can really connect. Next week, we're going to be talking about why punishments don't work. So we'll be going more in depth into that. So I hope to talk to you then and connect with you then. Thank you so much for making this podcast a part of your day, for giving us a chance to connect in this way. I'm wishing you a beautiful, peaceful week, and I hope this has truly inspired you. Namaste. Are you a mom who wants to feel less stressed and enjoy motherhood more? Do you want to be calmer with your kids and be more present for all of your life? I'm a mom who has gone from being stressed and yelling when my kids were young to be having a more grounded, more at ease relationship with life and having more enjoyable cooperative relationships with my kids. And I've shown hundreds and thousands of women around the world how to do this. And I want to show you how to do it too. So if you are currently feeling stuck or stagnant, this is definitely for you. I've created a free downloadable audible training, Mindfulness for Moms, the superpower you need. And it will show you how to respond rather than react, how to let go of stress and feel more grounded in seconds, how to have a smoother day today and become more present for your kids for a lifetime. To get on on this audio training absolutely free, simply visit the website www.mindfulmomguide.com. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence 
whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. 